Nima Well, thank you very much, uh, Moore, and thank you for your uh, very warm and uh, kind uh, welcome. I love Northern Ireland. I, I, you might just expect me to say that, but I really do. It's always been a real blessing the times I've been able to come over here, and I always return refreshed. One of the very best things I think about a minister's conference, and it's quite scary for us ministers to speak at minister's conferences, is the singing. I don't think there's anything like it. And why is that? Not because uh, we've got good voices. I think we really, in ministry, really feel and understand these truths. And we sing them with all our hearts, even on a Monday morning after a busy uh, Sunday. Now, the book of Daniel, and it's really important that we uh, understand this, is a coherent revelation, chapters 1 through 12. And the message of the book, we've picked the message of the book, fearless, seeing God clearly in a hostile world, or... God rules, therefore live distinctively, or live in light of God's rule. There's always an indicative, God, and the imperative, therefore, so uh, live. Structure, uh, we've uh, looked at. Uh, we're dividing narrative and prophecy. Um, and it's important to know that that's not a time-based division. The visions and the events, the visions chapter 7 to 12 and the events 1 to 6, they all kind of cohere and fit together, as we'll see through Daniel's time in exile. Now, there are four visions in Daniel 7 to 12. Let me just point them out to you. Chapter 7 is vision 1. Chapter 8 is vision 2. And if we had time, we could look at the detail and you'd see the markers. Uh, vision 3 is chapter 9. That goes with Daniel's prayer, his prayer and the vision of the 77s or the 70 weeks. And then the whole of chapters 10 to 12 is one vision, vision 4. Now, we're going to take vision 1, chapter 7 now, later on this afternoon, and it's quite a tall order for 3 o'clock or half 3 to half 4 on a Monday after a Sunday, uh, visions 2 and 3, chapters 8 and 9, and uh, then tomorrow morning, chapters 10 through uh, 12. Now, I've not used the word apocalyptic yet, and rather, uh, I wanted to refer to these chapters as prophetic, so prophetic visions expressed in apocalyptic language. So they are prophecy, and we'll discover as we work through these chapters, for example, that they share with most of biblical prophecy, uh, prediction, predictive prophecy, the peaks of predictive prophecy. So we see the coming of Christ. Uh, we see the return of Christ, uh, and, and that's in keeping with all prophecy. So apocalyptic literature, I think better expressed in a book like Daniel, prophecy expressed in apocalyptic language. And in common with every biblical literary genre, and the Bible is full of diversity, and that's not simply a challenge to us, although it is, it's a gift to us as uh, preachers. And apocalyptic literature, just as much as any other genre of literature, I think we struggle with it, and we think it's difficult because it's just different. And we're, we're kind of wired in our Western educational philosophy to teach narrative, to some extent, 
but we're best at teaching epistles. Epistles are at the top, the letters. We, we work with the logic of the letter. And when we come down to narrative gospels, it's a bit harder. And then all the way down to poetry and wisdom. And down at the bottom is apocalyptic literature. Except if you're under the age of 20. And you go to the cinema and you watch films like Fantastic Beasts. An apocalyptic genre, an apocalyptic literature is capturing across the world a young generation who get it, who understand it, and who feel the power of it and its excitement. But it's full of symbolism and numbers and vivid emotive uh, language. Now, if we're not teaching apocalyptic literature, we're missing out, and I expect me to say that. Let me, let me make the case. Firstly, we're missing out a big chunk of God's revealed word. So we're missing out Ezekiel, Daniel, Zechariah, big chunks of the Gospels, New Testament letters like 1 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians to Peter, chapter 3, and of course the climax of Scripture, the Revelation. That's a lot of Scripture, 15 to 20 percent. That's a lot. But what we're missing out on more than, I mean, you, you can be motivated to preach apocalyptic literature because it's 15% and, and you think, well, I've got to teach it, I've got to preach it. But more than that, what we're missing out on is wonderful material to preach and teach. It's exciting. And it's bang on relevant, as we've already seen. Because the narratives in Daniel fit with the apocalypse in Daniel. They go together. Now, last introductory point before we plunge in and read uh, some of the apocalyptic material is to define the word apocalyptic. What does apocalyptic mean? Oh, it must mean difficult or confusing. Apocalypse is the Greek word for uncover or reveal. An apocalypse is when you suddenly see the true nature of something that you could not see before. And therefore, in the Bible, an apocalypse is when God pulls back the curtain to show us what is really going on in the world. It reveals something that we could not see without it. Hence, the title of the last book of the Bible, The Apocalypse. Open your eyes. That's effectively what Revelation is there for. And so, Daniel. Now, we're going to read... Um, a bit of Daniel chapter 2, not to steal Jaunty's thunder, I have said I'm going to do this, but I'm going to read the apocalyptic bit that when you get a Daniel 7, you've got to have in the back of your mind. So Daniel chapter 2, if you follow along in your Bibles, and I'm going to read from verse 31, which is uh, Daniel telling Nebuchadnezzar his dream, and then I'll read the interpretation, and then we'll move into Daniel Seven. So, Daniel 2, verse 31. Your majesty, this is Daniel speaking, looked, uh, Nebuchadnezzar is your majesty, and there before you stood a large statue, an enormous, dazzling statue, awesome in appearance. The head of the statue was made of pure gold, its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet of partly of iron and partly of baked clay. Now picture this in your mind, and it is an emotive image. While you were watching, a rock 
cut out but not by human hands. No human chisel chiseled out that rock. Struck the feet of the statue, the iron and clay, and smashed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, the gold, the whole thing came crashing down and became like chaff on a threshing floor in the summer. The wind swept them away without leaving a trace. But the rock that struck the statue became a huge mountain and filled the whole earth. Verse 36, this was the dream, and now we will interpret it to you, king. Your majesty, you are the king of kings, at which point Nebuchadnezzar went, of course, of course. The God of heaven has given you dominion. That's uh, exactly what Jonty was pointing us to in chapter 1, verse 2. The God of heaven has given you dominion and might and glory. In your hands he has placed all mankind and the beasts of the field and the birds in the sky. That's like creation language or fallen creation language. Wherever they live, he has made you ruler over them all. You are that head of gold. After you, another kingdom will arise. I just wonder when Nebuchadnezzar heard that, did he actually think his kingdom would come to an end? After you, another kingdom will arise, inferior to yours. He'd agree with that bit. Next, a third kingdom, one of bronze, will rule over the whole earth. Finally, there will be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, for iron breaks and smashes everything, and as iron breaks things to pieces, so it will crush and break all of the others. Just as you saw that the feet and the toes, notice the introduction of toes at this point, because there are ten of them, ten toes, were partly of baked clay and partly of iron, so that will be a divided kingdom, yet it will have some of the strength of iron in it, even as you saw iron mixed with clay, as the toes were partly iron and partly clay, so this kingdom will be partly strong and partly brittle, I mean, it's odd stuff, isn't it? All of this stuff about the toes. Ten toes. And verse 43 is, is like a, a bolt out of the blue. And we'll pick it up again in chapter 11, chapter 8. Just as you saw the iron mixed with baked clay, so the people will be a mixture. Literally, they will mix with one another in marriage. It's a strange comment in the middle of the vision. And will not remain united any more than iron mixes with clay. In the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it will itself endure forever. This is the meaning of the vision of the rock cut out of a mountain, but not by human hands, a rock that broke the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and gold to pieces. The great God has shown the king what will take place in the future. The dream is too, and its interpretation is trustworthy. Now, jump forward to Daniel 7, which, as John T. reminded us, is the other bookend of the Aramaic section. Why Aramaic? Aramaic is the lingua franca of the ancient world. It's the Spanish or the Arabic in our world today. It's the, it's the language of the world, and therefore Daniel 2-7 to is not just for God's people, it's for the world. Chapter 7, in the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, that's about two-thirds of the way through the exile, a bleak, bleak, bleak moment when Belshazzar took the reins. 
Daniel had a dream, and visions passed through his mind as he was lying on his bed. He wrote down the substance of his dream. Daniel said, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me were the four winds of heaven churning up the great sea. Four great beasts, each different from the others, came up out of the sea. The first was like a lion, and it had the wings of an eagle. I watched until its wings were torn off. And it was lifted from the ground so that it stood on two feet like a human being and the mind of a human was given to it. And there before me was a second beast which looked like a bear. It was raised up on one of its sides and it had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. It was told, get up and eat your fill of flesh. After that I looked and there before me was another bear one that looked like a leopard, and on its back it had four wings like those of a bird. This beast had four heads, and it was given authority to rule. After that, in my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was a fourth beast, terrifying and frightening and very powerful. It had large iron teeth. It crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left. It was different from all the former beasts, and it had ten horns. While I was thinking about the horns, there before me was another horn, a little horn, which came up among them, and three of the first horns were uprooted before it. This horn had eyes like the eyes of a human being and a mouth that spoke boastfully. As I looked, and the picture here is, as I looked out on the world, my eyes in my heart were raised. As I looked, thrones were set in place in heaven. And the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was as white as snow, the hair of his head was white like wool, his throne was flaming with fire, its wheels were all ablaze. You might recognize Ezekiel 1 and 2 there, the vision of the the, the moving chariot of God who has not abandoned his people in exile. A river of fire was flowing, verse 10, coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him. 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The court was seated and the books were opened. Then I continued to watch because of the boastful words. The horn was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was slain, its body destroyed and thrown into the blazing fire. The other beasts had been stripped of their authority, but were allowed to live for a period of time. And then these most astonishing words. And this is 600, 600 years before this event happened. And if the book of Daniel does a lot of things for our hearts, it will give us extraordinary confidence in the inspiration of God's Word. In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. I, Daniel, was troubled in spirit, and the visions that passed through my mind disturbed me. I mean, yes, yes, 
You see, when you read this, when you preach this, when you teach this, it has that affective ingredient that makes you humble before God. So I approached one of those standing there, a heavenly being, and I asked him the meaning of all this. So he told me and gave me the interpretation of these things. And there's a little hint. Don't run to a thousand commentaries on Daniel to tell you what it means. This is what it means. The Bible is its best commentary on itself. The four great beasts are four kings that will rise from the earth or kingdoms, but the holy people of the Most High will receive the kingdom and will possess it forever, forever, and ever. Then I wanted to know about the meaning of the fourth beast, which was different from all the others and most terrifying, with its iron teeth and bronze claws, the beast that crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left. I also wanted to know about the ten horns on its head and about the other horn that came up, before which three of them fell, the horn that looked more imposing than the others, and that had eyes and a mouth that spoke boastfully. As I watched, this horn was waging war against the holy people and defeating them. It's almost as if Daniel had a vision in his mind of spiritual battles in the history, watching that being worked out in the vision, until the Ancient of Days came, verse 22, and pronounced judgment in favor of the holy people of the Most High, and the time came when they possessed the kingdom. He gave me this explanation. The fourth beast is a fourth kingdom that will appear on earth. It will be different from all the other kingdoms and will devour the whole earth, trampling it down and crushing it. The ten horns are ten kings who will come from this kingdom. After them, another king will arise, different from the earlier ones. He will subdue three kings. He will speak against the Most High and oppress His holy people and try to change the set times and the laws. The holy people will be delivered into His hands for a time, times, and half a time. Now, we're not going to have much time to say about this, is the theology of time in the Bible. I think none of us can say for certainty what a time, times, and half a time is. What we can say with certainty is a defined, fixed period of time in the sovereign will of God. Nothing is to chance. But the court will sit, verse 26, and his power will be taken away and completely destroyed forever. Then the sovereignty, power, and greatness of all the kingdoms under heaven will be handed over to the holy people of the Most High. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom, and all rulers will worship and obey him. This is the end of the matter. I, Daniel, was deeply troubled by my thoughts. My face turned pale, and I kept the matter to myself. Now, it's half past twelve. It's a good tactic when you're doing talks on apocalyptic literature to spend all the session reading the Bible. <laughs> Let's pray that God will speak to our hearts. Our Father, this is different. It's wonderful. Help us to understand what it's saying and wrestle with it and keep alert. And like Daniel, to be humbled by it. For Jesus' sake. Amen. Now, Daniel 7 is a pivotal chapter in the book of Daniel. As uh, John T. said, it sums up and sets up. It is, moreover, a pivotal chapter in the Bible. It's a big Bible chapter. It's like 2 Samuel 7. It has a whole line running from it through uh, Scripture. How do you understand Daniel 7? Well, here are, some, uh, here are some principles for exposition. Number one, trust your instincts. What is it about? Jesus wins. Trust your instincts. And your congregation, the people you're teaching, trust their sanctified instincts. 
to know what this literature means. God has given us all biblical literature that we might understand more of Him. Trust your instincts. Now, you don't get that in a commentary. Number two, careful study of the text. You've got to work at this stuff. It's not easy. Number three, the context, the book of Daniel. And what will happen as we go through these sessions is it will constantly be referring back and forward to other bits in the book. The Bible's context, the book context. And fourthly, the whole Bible context. So if I'm teaching uh, Daniel 7, I'm thinking in my study, uh, trust your instincts, study the text carefully, pray through the text, meditate on it. What is the book of Daniel saying about this chapter and what is the Bible saying about this uh, chapter? Now, let me give you the, the sequential logic of the chapter. Just follow in your Bibles, and I'll rattle through this. Verse 1 is the setting of his vision. You can pick up this later on the audio or the video. Secondly, uh, the vision of four beasts, ten horns, and a little horn, verses 2 to 8. Thirdly, uh, the vision of the heavenly throne room, the Ancient of Days, and the Son of Man, verses 9 to 14. Fourthly, the interpretation of the vision, verses 15 to 27. And fifthly, Daniel's reaction to what he has seen. One, two, three, four, five. Now, if we are in epistle mode, we go exposition of one, two, three, four, five. But we're not. We're in apocalyptic vision. And, and the way apocalyptic visions uh, often work is that they have two bookends, two bits in the middle, and one peak of the mountain. And that's exactly what we have in this chapter. So we're going to work through the text uh, by taking the bookends first, the setting and the reaction, then we're going to come inside the bookends and look at the vision of the beasts, the ten horns and the little horn and its interpretation. And we're going to finish where God's Word wants us to finish with apocalyptic visions at the summit of the mountain with the Son of Man in heaven. And there's a little insight into how we've got to put one set of kind of expository principles to the side and approach this, this uh, literature in a slightly different way. Now... Um, we are going fast, but um, so is the clock. <laughs> Time's time and half a time. Right, setting. First year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, 552 BC. You'll get that in a commentary. What you need to know is that is the start of the bleakest time of Daniel in exile. The bit when he disappeared, only brought back by the queen mother to interpret the writing on the wall. And one of the most inspiring things that Jonty will highlight, I'm sure, in chapter 6 is the consistency of the man. The big test came when he was 70, not just when he was 17. It's a tough time. It's a tough time. And then verse 28, the other bookend, the reaction, he was deeply affected by what he saw. One of the most important applications of our preaching is the affective ingredient of the inspired Word of God. It leaves us deeply affected by what we see. Sometimes there's a huge pressure on us as ministers to give people the application, the what to do, the what to do, but the who he is is a very important application of Scripture. Now, inside the book ends, verses 2 to 8, the vision of the four beasts the ten horns, and the little horn. It all starts in the sea. And the sea in the Bible is the primeval deep, the haunt of evil. 
the habitat of uh, Satan. And there are numerous psalms that uh, uh, speak uh, to that. No wonder Jesus stood up on the prow of a boat. And uh, when he cried out, be still, actually what he said in Mark 4 is, 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 is muzzle yourself. That's the, the Greek. Satan, the haunt of the sea. Four beasts, first like a lion, powerful, dangerous, menacing. Notice it had human features. It stood on two feet like a man, and the heart of a man was given to it. It is um, human but inhuman. It's distorted humanity. It's something wrong. And the other beasts uh, make that point uh, really uh, clearly. Uh, the bear was raised up. Think of this. I mean, I don't know if you could picture this. No one's tried. The bear was raised up on one of its sides. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. A dreadful sight. Half beast, half man, fallen human power. Leopard. Notice verse 6. Given authority to rule. That's a a repeated refrain through the book of Daniel. Um, Now, these beasts teach us about the ambiguous nature of human power. It is destructive and menacing. It is destructive and menacing, but it's creative and brilliant. If you go to Berlin, one of the museums there, you will walk through a reconstruction of the Ishtar Gate that Daniel and his friends walked in as 17-year-olds into Babylon. It is magnificent and evil. It's creative genius and evil. The fourth beast, described in verses 7 to 8, is of a different order and magnitude. It's given a much uh, longer uh, introduction, and it, it's, it's vicious. Its iron teeth suggest militarism. Crushed, devoured, trampled. It had ten horns. One horn appears. The horn had eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth that spoke uh, boastfully. Now, let me, at this point, just jump in our minds back to Daniel chapter 2. There are clear parallels with chapter 2. The four beasts in chapter 7 correspond with the four-part statue in chapter 2. Remember chapter 2, uh, verse, this is the fourth part of the statue. Uh, legs of iron, feet partly of iron, partly of baked clay. The interpretation of fourth kingdom, strong as iron. In chapter 7, verse 4, a fourth beast, terrifying and frightening and powerful, iron teeth. Strong as iron. Statue, chapter 2, ten toes. Fourth beast, chapter 7, ten horns. Definitely the same thing. Now, what about the interpretation, verses 15 to 27? Now, it's frightening. And we've got to hold on to that. We've got to hold on to the effective ingredient. When God pulls the veil back and we see Jesus Christ in his glory, that's frightening, appropriately. But when we see the world and its evil, that should frighten us. It should alarm us. Now, verses 17 to 18 give us an overview. The interpretation is brief and focuses on uh, the, the four beasts as four kingdoms that will rise from the earth, verse 17. Fallen human power, which kingdoms? And here I'm drawing on chapter 2 again. 
the strong parallels between chapters 2 and 7 are based uh, on the interpretation of the four-part statue in chapter 2. It's reasonable to infer that the four kingdoms are, respectfully, Babylon. We know the first one is. So first part of the statue, head of gold, and first uh, kingdom, the lion. And I don't think we need to worry about that. That's the obvious interpretation. It's Babylon. Followed by, and if we know our ancient world history, uh, Medo-Persia, followed by Greece, followed by uh, Rome. And and we could look at the, the, the... the details to suggest, well, that's plausible interpretation, and I'm persuaded that it is. And then in verse 18, the focus shifts from the beast to God's everlasting kingdom. We'll come back to that. That's the heart of the vision. Now, the second part of the interpretation, verses 19 through 27, concentrates on the identity of the fourth beast and its horns. Daniel never doubts that God is in control, but he is alarmed by this vision of the fourth uh, beast. And it's given much more attention uh, in the the text. Now, verses 23 to 27 explains what's going on. The fourth beast is described as a fourth kingdom that will appear on this earth. And the interpretation... uh, mirrors the the difference between the fourth kingdom and the other kingdoms in the explanation, the interpretation of the explanation. It's uh, different because of its uh, ferocious uh, intent to destroy uh, the whole earth. Now, we just said a minute ago that the fourth beast is, like the fourth part of the statue, plausibly Rome, in which period the kingdom of God comes. But the fourth beast, you cannot pin it down simply to be that kingdom. Whatever you try to do, you're going to hit a brick wall with some part of your explanation. And so the fourth beast in Daniel 7, I think, is generic. It is representative. It's a typology of all human power and authority that is either worked out in the world independent of God or anti-God. Independent of God, it's typology, it's a type, it's, a, it's, a, it's generic. Now, is that not a contradiction? How can the fourth beast represent all human kingdoms and power? And at the same time, how can it represent Rome, which was the ruling world empire when the everlasting kingdom of God was established? That is not a contradiction. It is a way that apocalyptic literature uh, works. It's exactly how it works. And God knew when he inspired these visions then that we will be sitting here two and a half thousand years later watching the outworking of the generic principles in Daniel 7 in our time, in our world, and in our culture. Now, If Daniel's fourth beast intended to represent all human kingdoms and power, if all we had to go on was uh, Daniel chapter 2, we'd be on shaky ground. But we don't. So where could we go? I'd love to have an hour to talk you through, walk you through Revelation. And at the heart of Revelation, we get a vision of a beast out of the sea. Let me just read it. And there is no doubt when you read it that God had Daniel beast number four in mind when he inspired revelation i saw a beast coming out of the sea it had ten horns 
and seven heads with ten crowns on its horns, and on each head a blasphemous name. The beast I saw resembled a leopard. That's beast three in Daniel. It had feet like those of a bear. It had a mouth like a lion and the dragon, who is the beast behind the beast. Satan, the devil, gave the beast his power and his throne and great uh, authority. And, and there's another chink, link in the chain. Satan gives the beast's authority. God allows Satan to give the beast's authority. And uh, the vision uh, goes on, and, and I'd love to just look at, uh, well, here's verse 5 of Revelation 13. The beast was given a mouth to utter proud words and blasphemies. That's exactly the same beast. It just is. The beast in Revelation, ten horns, haughty words, makes war with the saints, authority is limited, contains features of all the other beasts. Now, while beasts represent kingdoms, horns, I think, represent individuals. Now, um, when you use a word like antichrist, immediately we go, Whew. Antichrist just means individuals or ideologies that are antichrist, either in place of Christ or against him. And worldly human power, to some extent, is always that. Now, if this is a generic typology, Daniel, fourth beast, Revelation 13, then is this horn representative of antichrists all the way through human history? Yes. Human kingdoms and powers that oppose God or that stand in place of him, and individuals that stand against God or in place of him. Now, one question that I'll leave hanging is, is there an antichrist at the end of history? 2 Thessalonians 2, the man of lawlessness, or 1 John chapters 1 and 2, the antichrist and the spirit of antichrist. Um, I don't know the answer to that. And what I do know is that there might be, but I'm to get on with the job of preaching the gospel now and to prepare God's people to live godly, distinctive lives now. And I don't think you can be more dogmatic than that. Okay. How are we doing? It's 12.47. We've done the beasts. I once preached on Daniel chapter 6, and the clock struck zero, and we hadn't got Daniel out of the lion's den. It totally changes the story. So what do we get in these four beasts? And, and go back to your instinct, your instincts. This is bad stuff. It's fallen, distorted humanity. It looks wonderful and creative. It makes the Ishtar Gate and the Ishtar Way and the great gardens of Babylon, but it destroys Jerusalem. That's the world. It's the city of London. One, two, three, four beasts that work up until the time the Son of Man comes. But the fourth beast, Revelation 13, is generic of all empires and all powers that stand against God or in place of God. Now, let's get to the heart of the vision. And I haven't even mentioned the word chiasm. You can only mention that at a preacher's conference. Chiasm. And the way that the visions work is that it forces the point 
And we end up with, we end up in these visions focusing on the Son of Man, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not that we get there the wrong way, it's that this gets us there the right way. So, verses 9 to 14. A vision of the heavenly throne room in the ancient of days and the Son of Man. As I looked, and it's not that beast one, beast two, beast three, beast four, then God comes onto his throne. Beast one, beast, beast two, beast three, beast four, Christ is crowned. But God was always on his throne. This is a, a parallel reality. Thrones were set in place. The ancient of days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow. The hair of his head was white like wool. His throne was flaming with fire. Its wheels were all ablaze. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him. 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. Now, if I had time, I would show you that we move from disordered language to poetry. It's linguistically ordered. It's light. It's not dark. It's, it's, it's beautiful. This being is worshipped, not opposed. God on his throne. Now, there are some important textual links. This sets off fireworks. How does Ezekiel start? The other great exilic prophet, Ezekiel ministered in a shanty town on the banks of the Kibar Canal. His prophecy is all about the presence of God. Daniel ministered in the royal courts. His prophecy is all about power, presence and power. Ezekiel starts with a vision of God and his throne. And how does Revelation start, the great apocalypse, to the early church suffering as John was exiled in Patmos? Revelation starts with chapters 4 and 5 after the letters, God and his throne. And the first note, the big indicative before you ever teach these books, is God is on his throne. God is sovereign. God is reigning. God is king. Sinclair Ferguson was mentioned earlier. Uh, he, he, I think he, this is right, that he always reads Daniel chapters 4 and 5 before he preaches to remind him where God is and beside him uh, is is, is, is the Lamb. One little detail in uh, Daniel chapter 7. As I looked, there were thrones set in place, plural thrones. One for God and one for who else? God's King. And that takes you to, to Hebrews, it takes you to Psalm 110, it takes you all over the Bible, captured in these apocalyptic uh, visions. Now, God on his throne. And then the focus shifts, and with this, we'll come into land. We're still off the coast of somewhere, but we will come into land. These magnificent verses that would make me believe that what I'm dealing with here is the Word of God. And if I didn't believe that, I would devote my whole life to post-dating the book of Daniel into somewhere in the first century. Because if I cannot do that, all I'm left with is the Word of God. Such a powerful, such a powerful book about the inspiration of God. Now, this figure in verses 13 and 14, uh, coming with the clouds of heaven, 
And all sorts of Old Testament echoes here. God in a cloud. God in a chariot. This figure does not come from the sea. Nor is he a beast. He is one like a son of man. He is divine and he is human. Now I know who you know it is. But never let our congregations ever think that we have become familiar <laughs> with the fact that the answer is Jesus. Two questions. Who is the Son of Man and what event is being described? First, who is the Son of Man? Now, to answer that question, to persuade people of the answer, you need to go to the New Testament, to the Gospels and uh, Revelation. There are 52 references to the Son of Man in the Gospels. He is Jesus. It is the title Jesus uses most often for himself. Jesus, in his ministry, which inaugurates the kingdom of God, wants us to go in the Gospels to Daniel 7. That's where we start. Now, how is the Son of Man used in the New Testament, the Gospels in particular? It is associated with his first coming and his proclamation of God's kingdom. So, for example, Mark 2 and verse 10, I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth. I want you to know, Jesus said, that the Daniel man has authority on earth to forgive your sins. Now, we'll get to that this afternoon as Daniel prays, picking up all that Jeremiah says, not just about the return to Jerusalem, but the new covenant in Christ. Or the Son of Man is associated with Jesus' suffering, death, and resurrection. So think of the passion predictions in Mark. The Son of Man must suffer and be raised. Three times we're told that. Or the key verse in Mark's Gospel. For the Son of Man did not come to be served, but a servant to give his life as a ransom for many. Son of Man is associated with Jesus' coronation as God's King. Revelation 1, 12 to 18, I turned to see one like a son of man, reigning in heaven in glory. Son of man is associated with Jesus' return at the end of the age. So, for example, Mark 13, in those days, this is the apocalyptic stuff in the Gospels. In those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall and the son of man will come in clouds. The Son of Man is associated with the suffering church. It is a vision of the Son of Man that Stephen sees. Now, second, and this is our last bit, what event is being described? It is Jesus, Daniel 7, 13 to 14, but what event now, the text suggests, careful study of the text, that the Son of Man is entering into heaven rather than coming from it. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. So it seems that this is the ascension and coronation of Jesus rather than his second coming. That seems plausible, especially when the text says, verse 14, "'He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power.'" God gave Jesus as his everlasting king, post-death and resurrection and ascension, rule and reign, as Philippians 
chapter uh, 2. But if the description of the Son of Man here in Daniel 7 is Jesus entering heaven to be crowned as king, what do we do with all the gospel passages that speak of Jesus coming on the clouds of heaven at the end of time? And it's no contradiction. What Daniel 7 is speaking about is the not yet as well as the now of God's everlasting kingdom. He's speaking about the coronation of Christ and the return of Christ at the end of the age. How do we know that? Because Daniel 7 speaks about the inheritance of the saints, and we've not yet inherited the new creation. Daniel 7 talks about how the enemies of Christ will become a footstool of his feet. Hebrews. That's not happened yet. Daniel 7 talks about how God will execute his final justice and judgment on the serpent and the beast. That has not happened yet. So Daniel 7 is both a now and a not yet of the everlasting kingdom of God. And one more bit of evidence for that is Daniel 2, the rock. Who's the rock? Jesus. The rock became the cornerstone, all sorts of New Testament texts. That rock fills the whole earth. And we are not yet at the point where the kingdom of God is the kingdom of this world. So Daniel 7, let me wrap up now. The vision of God on his throne, he has always been. And the vision of the Son of Man is the coronation and the return of Jesus Christ. It is the inauguration and the consummation of God's everlasting kingdom where you and I and all believing people in the universal church, the heavenly church and the earthly church will live forever with Jesus. And this is prophesied in the bleakest year, in the bleakest period of God's people in Old Testament history, in the exile. And no wonder Daniel was humbled and fell to his knees. Now, what are the key messages of this chapter? God's sovereignty over history That's the title I gave to it. The nature of human power, God's eternal kingdom, the triumph of the Son of Man, the preservation of God's people, the inspiration of the Word of God. How would you teach it and preach it? We might come back to this in the Q&A. I would give it three, not one. Three talks. Just merits that. We've raced through it today and we're all preachers. It merits taking your time to trace the lines through the Bible, uh, to set off fireworks, that may not give people on a Monday morning, this is what I need to do. But it will give people on a Monday morning, this is who Jesus is. And I need to worship him and love him. We could easily give Daniel chapter 7, which is the heart of the book, the title of our conference, Seeing God Clearly in a Hostile World, Therefore Live Fearlessly. Let's pray. Lord, we've raced through this stuff. We pray that it will have sunk in in our hearts in an effective way and that you would raise our affections for Jesus Christ, the Son of Man, and for God on his throne. And as we look out in our world, help us to be realistic but never afraid. For history is headed in only one direction, and that is to the new heavens and the new earth. So help us live fearlessly, distinctively, in light of this vision. 
and continue to bless us with your presence and your help and your encouragement, not least as we sing now, for Jesus' sake. Amen. Nima.